This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Scripps Oceanography at UC San Diego. I'm Margaret Linen. I'm the Vice Chancellor for Marine Science at UC San Diego and Director of Scripps Oceanography. Uh, we are very excited to welcome you here tonight uh, to see uh, Major General Charles Bolden receive the Nuremberg Prize for Science in the Public Interest and to hear him speak. Uh, this annual event is made possible through the generosity of the Nuremberg family. The prize is named after a previous director of Scripps Oceanography, Bill Nuremberg, who served from 1965 to 1986, almost 20 years as director of this amazing organization. And so our personal thanks go to the Nuremberg's for honoring uh, Bill in this very, very appropriate way. And I'm delighted to tell you that we have many of the Nuremberg family here with us tonight. First and foremost, Edith Nuremberg, uh, Bill's wife. We have uh, Nico Nuremberg, uh, Bill's son, and his wife, Caroline, uh, for whom our Caroline's uh, Cafe upstairs is named. Thank you, Caroline. Uh, we also have Victoria Schinkel, uh, Bill's uh, daughter, and her husband, Walter Schinkel. Uh, we have Dr. Anna Nuremberg, Bill's grand granddaughter, who is a physicist at Ohio State University, and Wilt Nuremberg, uh, his grandson, uh, who is over here joining us. And so please join me in thanking the Nuremberg family for honoring Bill in this way and giving us all the pleasure of being able to attend this uh, wonderful lecture. Uh, I'd also like to thank the entire Nuremberg Prize Committee, which includes faculty members from Scripps Oceanography, um, members of the main campus UC San Diego community, as well uh, as two distinguished scientists from outside of UCSD. So now on to tell you a little bit more about Major Bolden. Major Bolden is an American hero. He grew up in the segregated South and overcame great obstacles to become a transformative leader. He served for 34 years in the Marine Corps and spent 14 of those years as a NASA astronaut from 1980 to 1994, logging more than 680 hours in space during four space shuttle missions, twice as the commander and twice as pilot. Notably, Major Bolden piloted Space Shuttle Discovery during STS-31 in April of 1990, during which he and a crew deployed the Hubble Space Telescope, from which we have had so many amazing images. You're with scientists, Charlie. You know the telescope. 
Uh, he is the first African-American to serve as NASA administrator, a position he held from 2009 to January of this year, uh, and was appointed by President Obama and confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And as NASA administrator, he joined us for the christening of the RV Sally Ride in Anacortes, Washington, last year. Uh, and uh, because, of course, it's named after Sally Ride, the, the astronaut. During his time at the helm, Major Bolden oversaw a new era of exploration focused on full utilization of the International Space Station, as well as new space and aeronautical technology. He prepared the agency for manned space exploration beyond the moon, which we're all very excited about. Uh, and he did that through development of the Orion spacecraft that will carry astronauts into deep space uh, and uh, deep space destinations, including asteroids and Mars. And probably there'll be some other one that will take us beyond Mars. The agency's groundbreaking science activities uh, under uh, Major General Bolden included the unprecedented launching uh, of the Curiosity rover, and I had the privilege of attending that launch, and the successful landing of the Curiosity rover. And we all follow uh, Curiosity as it moves around and uh, is just such a testament to not only an ingenuity, but the excitement of science and exploration, which resonates, resonates so much with us here at Scripps. Major uh, Bolden was born in 1946 in Columbia, South Carolina. After graduating from high school, he received an appointment at the U.S. Naval Academy, where he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in electrical science in 1968. After completing flight training in 1970, he became a naval aviator and test pilot and flew more than 100 combat missions during the Vietnam War. He went on to receive a Master's of Science degree in Systems Management from the University of Southern California in 1977, and uh, he was inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in May 2006, and now he can add the Nuremberg Prize to his long list of honors. His commitment to perform daring science for the global good is right in line with UC San Diego's Understanding and Protecting the Planet initiative. Courageous leaders like Major Bolden serve as an inspiration not only to us, but the next generation of scientists and go-getters. So here at Scripps, uh, all of us strive to be innovators, explorers, and contributors to science in the public interest like you. We are honored to have you as a recipient of the prize and as our speaker tonight. So uh, as uh, um, Director of Science, uh, or Director of Scripps, um, I want to uh, really recognize that you could have done many things after being uh, an American hero, and you chose to facilitate science Thank you very, very much. And now it's my pleasure to uh, introduce and welcome to the podium Victoria Schinkel, Bill's uh, daughter. Victoria.
Before she starts, I want to make sure that you know that Victoria is a very impressive person in her own right. She is a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration for her public service in environmental and energy policy. She served as the secretary of the Florida Department of Environmental Regulation, and under her leadership, Florida took several landmark environmental initiatives, including the state's first wetland protection laws and regulations. And she also secured passage of the Save Our Rivers Act, a $900 million program to preserve floodplains and recharge areas in Florida. She's currently a member of the board of the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and a charter member of the Florida Conservation Coalition. You are exactly the right person to give this award. Victoria. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Director Leinen. It's so nice of you. Um, I hope I can say, because I'm the official one to say this, that on our behalf, all our Nuremberg family and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, it is, will be my pleasure to introduce Major Corps, Marine Corps Major General Charles Bolden, this year's winner of the Nuremberg Prize for Science in the Public Interest. The awarding of the Nuremberg Prize recognizes that as NASA, NASA Administrator General Bolden saw his role to be the head of space for the Earth. He was an ambassador for science, technology, and appreciation of the natural world. He's a visionary, inspiring all of us to think about the wonders that are out there that we can feel, that we can measure, and maybe even touch. When we are glued to fake images on our mobile devices, he calls us back to the possibility of aliens, of humans visiting other planets, and to the great vast unknown that might, in fact, be knowable. These accomplishments make him a very deserving winner of the Nuremberg Prize for Science in the Public Interest. It is now my pleasure to present the 2017 Nuremberg Prize for Science in the Public Interest to Major General Charles Bolden. Director Leinen, I hope you will join me as we do this. You know, that's about all I can say as well. I, I will say, first of all, let me thank people. Um, Mrs. Schinkel, thank you very much. And I got to get this right. Schinkel. Did I get it close? Okay. You know what? Well, we talked about this. I want to make sure it's right. You got to. So I want to I want to thank you for representing the family here. And I want to thank your mother for uh, her graciousness in coming out tonight and for being uh, being so so vivacious and. And, and joyful with all of us. And, uh, and, and Dr. Monk, what can I say about you? You're just a very special person. I'd heard about you all day, 
and to see you come in uh, and to have an opportunity to talk to you was, was very, very special. Um, but I really want to thank uh, Director Margaret Leinen for, um, for all that she has done here at Scripps and for being an, an, an incredible friend in a very difficult time. Uh, we all remember Sally Ride, and, uh, and, and it was very special to be with her in Anacortes, Washington, when we christened the, uh, the, the ocean-going research vessel Sally Ride. It, we knew that it would one of these days be an incredible vehicle to sail the seas and, and to help us discover more about a particular part of our planet that we really don't know a lot about. Uh, everybody talks about space, but what we, what we don't know about the oceans will dwarf other kinds of things. So, so I, am, I am indebted to all of you and to the Nuremberg family uh, and the prize committee. Thank you so much for the honor of selecting me to, to be this re year's recipient of the Nuremberg Prize, Nuremberg prize for science in the public interest. I have to admit, when I got notification that I was to be the recipient of the award, I was not, I would say, somewhat intimidated, but quite intimidated uh, at, at being selected to, uh, and to come here and attempt to uphold the legacy of Dr. William Nuremberg, in whose memory this prize was created. The, the work of Dr. Nuremberg and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography is legendary. I, I don't need to tell that to anybody here. Given the long-standing relationships among the University of California in San Diego, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and NASA, and in consideration of all the turmoil about science and its relevance and value back in where we are in Washington, D.C., I thought it might be useful and hopefully uh, interesting to talk a little bit about the critical importance of international cooperation uh, in the day-to-day -day work of our civil space program at NASA and its role as a key provider of soft power for our nation. You know, as I talk, I'll, I'll let you ponder the, I call these the grand questions. I'm not going to talk a lot about them. I'll let you ponder them because this is what NASA does day in and day out. It doesn't make any difference whether you're in aeronautics or human space flight or science. We are always wondering in, in trying to fulfill our vision, which says that we seek to, to, to reach to higher planes so that what we know and what we learn makes life better for people here on this planet. And, uh, and, but we all know that in order to understand this planet better, we must understand what else there is in our solar system and in the universe. And, and most of the people that I have worked with are like me. We really harbor this hope that we'll actually find signs of life other places in our universe. And, uh, and that we will find habitable planets and that there may be life there. So those are, I call those the, the grand questions. So I'll, I'll let you ponder that. One of my great joys while I served as the NASA administrator for two terms uh, with President Obama in the Obama administration was getting the chance to, to meet with young people all over the world. And while it may not feel like it, uh, you can take it from me because I'm 71 years old. And, and uh, I know that's not old there, Dr. Mike. Okay. <laughs> You're not old. We're, we're both young men, vibrant young men. But take it from me, being any, lay, any age less than 100 is pretty young. So uh, don't worry about getting old. Let me share with you a couple of quotes um, as my introduc introductory remarks tonight. Quote number one, the, the first day I was up there, and by up there, the person who said that was talking about being in space. And he goes on, you try to recognize the countries. Then the speaker names his own country and says, 
if it, it stands out, it's very distinct, then you keep missing the countries and you look only at the continents. By the sixth day, the whole world becomes the beautiful blue and white and yellow painting. Those boundaries really disappear. With me, they're all gone. The second quote from a different person who flew in space is, there's no better place to emphasize the unity of people in the world than flying in space. We are all the same people. We're all human beings. And I believe that most of us, almost all of us, are good people. The first quote is from Prince Sultan Salman Abdul Aziz al-Saud of Saudi Arabia. After flying as a member of the STS-51G shuttle mission in June of 1985. The second by the late Israeli astronaut Alain Ramon. During his ill-fated STS-107 mission in January 2003. I thought about these quotes a lot two years ago, while Jackie and I were blessed to be in Jerusalem for the 66th International Astronautical Congress, uh, a, a world-renowned congress of people from the scientific community. And um, I don't have to remind anybody here in this audience that these are challenging times in that part of the world. But I will also remind you that these are, in fact, growingly challenging times throughout the world, even here at home. Yet there we were, Jackie and I, along with others, an international community gathered in that place to talk about our shared destinies. One of the highlights of my trip was the opportunity to meet with members of an organization called the Space Generation Advisory Council, a global non-governmental nonprofit organization uh, and a network which aims to represent university students and young space professionals to the United Nations, space agencies, industry, and academia, and to listen, to listen to their dreams and aspirations for a future, a future world at peace with human presence extended beyond low Earth orbit, deeper into our solar system. Having been blessed to see our planet from space, I can attest that from, from up there you really don't see borders. You don't see boundaries. You see a place seemingly at peace and tranquility and one beautiful planet. Since we're in an oceanographic institution, uh, you see one ocean, only one. We are a water planet, 75% water, one ocean, with little bodies of land, some big ones we call, plant, call continents and others we call islands, and some of them have disappeared now forever uh, with the rising sea level. But, uh, but, but you see one ocean, and you recognize pretty quickly that what happens in one part of that ocean eventually will affect what happens in another part of that ocean, or what happens in one part of our atmosphere, that thin blue line that goes around Earth that if you close one eye and put your thumb up when you're in space and put it out there, you obliterate our atmosphere. It goes away. That's, that's how fragile it, it really is. And, uh, but you also look back at this planet and you see a sign that um, says something like, help wanted. Well, not really, but you, know, you think about it as you look at Earth from that vantage point. And I came here tonight uh, to hopefully convince all of you that our planet needs you. We need your leadership. We need your ingenuity. We need your imagination. We need... We need increased international cooperation and collaboration. For those of you still in your 30s or younger, and I look around and there are quite a few of you, you're in that sweet spot in your life when, 
On one hand, you're old enough to be role models and mentors. On the other hand, you're still young enough that your professional and civic lives are really just beginning, and you're more likely to be forgiven for your errors and inactions than later in life. Don't press it, okay? (laughs) Some of you may be parents already. Others might have younger siblings. Many of you likely supervise interns or younger staff. In many ways, your future lives and careers will be defined by how we respond to the question of how we as one planet can come together to tackle some of the greatest challenges. I am here this evening to tell you that I believe space exploration is one of the most important tools this generation will use to bring about a better future that you deserve, a more peaceful future, a greener future. Yours will be a future where human beings have pushed further into the universe, not just to visit, but as President Obama used to say, to stay. Over the last uh, several years, NASA has been very good about taking us to all of the known planets. And I say all of the known planets. Some of you are picky. (laughs) And uh, you'll say, but what about this place you're showing us here? That's not really a planet. That's a dwarf. I don't care what you say. It's a planet. <laughs> and, uh, and the New Horizons mission uh, helped us to understand why it, why it should be called a planet again. It, I mean, when we flew by Pluto with New Horizons, we were mesmerized. People who, like me, who knew nothing about planetology or or planetary geology, were just mesmerized by the size and majesty of the mountains on Pluto and, and the ice-covered portions of land and its own kind of atmosphere. So uh, it's a planet. <laughs> we have another satellite that we launched a couple of years ago, and it, and it made its, what is it, seven-month journey to Jupiter? Long time, seven-year, not month seven-year journey. Juno was somewhat unique, and it stands unique to this day because Juno was the first time we sent uh, a a satellite to an outer planet that did not have nuclear power. It's solar-powered. And so when you look at the large solar arrays, they are what at the time was advanced state-of-the-art solar arrays that are able to take the light, the photons from the sun, and power the spacecraft all the way out to the outer planets. And it, it has set the, it set the bar for the development of future satellites and things that will go to the outer planets that will not have to rely on nuclear power the way we used to do. And then just uh, a, couple of, a year ago, uh, we launched something called OSIRIS-REx. And what's unique about OSIRIS-REx is it's speeding its way. It just last a uh, couple of weeks ago, it went whoo, Whizzing by Earth, it got a, you know, an, an Earth assist to accelerate it out to meet with a big asteroid. I mean a big asteroid called Bennu. And when it catches up with, it's really not catching up with it, when it meets Bennu, which is going to whiz by Earth here in a few years, it's actually going to orbit Bennu for a couple of years and survey it and decide, where should I land? And then it's going to go down as if it were going to land on Bennu, but it'll stop short and hover just a few meters off the surface and stick a big probe down into the soil of Bennu, kick up dust and dirt, and bring back a sample 
uh, to earth that's in a container and drop it in the Utah desert in 2023. So every, everybody in here, you and me, Walter, we're going to be there. But in that Walter, I know you'll be there, the, the big Walter. But in 2023, we're going to bring this sample back from Bennu. And for the first time, we're actually going to look at soil from a, from a, a foreign body in our solar, in, in our, in our solar system. Um, and that's going to be absolutely spectacular. So th- those are some of the missions on which we're embarked right now. But to me, public diplomacy and cooperation in space go together like peanut butter and jelly. And you may say, why the heck did he pick peanut butter and jelly? Well, Jack and I are privileged to have three granddaughters, and, and they all like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, especially the baby, Taya, who's not really a baby anymore. She's a grown woman at 11. <laughs> but, but it's a favorite of our baby granddaughter, Taya. So, you know, diplomacy and cooperation just go together like peanut butter and jelly. It, it's really that important. All told... Today, your space agency, the space agency that you support with your tax dollars, and, and, and be advised, it's very few of your tax dollars, okay? <laughs> so don't, don't believe what anybody tells you about how much money goes to NASA. It's less than one-half of 1% of your tax dollar. Uh, but but that, that amount of money uh, provides for NASA to be able to be actively engaged in more than 800 interna- active international agreements, with more than 120 international partners today, as I stand here. While the purpose of these international agreements in general is scientific and technological, it's not lost on me that, like so many other things when it comes to space, there, there is also spinoff. Folks across the world generally have viewed us Americans as generous, compassionate, innovative, and peaceful people, and they still do, believe it or not. Um, when I was the age of many of you under 40 in our audience, much was made about the fact that our country was in space, uh, involved in a space race with the Soviet Union. Today, a child uh, who is 17 years or younger, and some of you have kids in this category, or grandchildren as we do, a child who is 17 years or younger has lived every single day of his or her life while human beings from multiple countries are living and working together in space aboard the International Space Station. This This spacecraft sits 250 miles above Earth. It's been there for more than 17 years now. And there has not been a single second in the life of a 17-year-old child that human beings have not been living and working on the International Space Station. I still maintain, and I am really serious, that the space station ought to be considered for the Nobel Peace Prize. Think about this. Tens of thousands of people from across 15 countries Uh, have been involved in its construction and operations, all working toward common goals of discovery, understanding, and human progress. The future of space exploration will create some remarkable opportunities for coming generations. In fact, it already has, and these opportunities can be summarized in a word, Mars. Let me explain why I say that. Our story could begin with U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower back in the 50s. You see, presidents ever since Eisenhower, and maybe even before, but since Eisenhower have floated the idea, every president, every single president has floated the idea of uh, going to Mars, of sending humans to Mars. But about 14 years ago, here in the U.S., we had a horrible, horrible setback. On February 1st, 2003, we lost Space Shuttle Columbia. Following that accident, the U.S. made the decision that we should phase out of the shuttle program 
in favor of a new partnership with private industry and entrepreneurs to produce commercially available services to carry cargo and people to low Earth orbit. The shuttle had already had a remarkable three decades long run like no other. I can tell you, I traveled to space four times on the shuttle and, and, and it, I love that spacecraft. It was absolutely incredible. But every technology evolves over time and although this was a decision to which I did not arrive lightly, I agreed with the recommendation as did many in the space community at the time. And so President Obama uh, made the decision that we would move on to deep space. In April of 2010, President Barack Obama came to the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in, Cape, in Kennedy Space Center, Florida, and delivered what I considered at the time to be a major space policy address. In it, he laid out a plan to replace our unsustainable exploration trajectory with a clear, affordable, financially sustainable, and ambitious way forward a way forward that would expand humanity's presence deeper into the universe while strengthening our Amer America's leadership in the world space community. In that speech, President Obama uh, called for expanding robotic exploration of the solar system. He asked NASA to move forward with the magnificent James Webb Space Telescope that will be sent a million miles, a million and a half kilometers from Earth one year from next month. So November of 2018, we'll launch the James Webb Space Telescope on a European Space Agency Ariane 5 rocket from their launch site in Kourou, French Guiana. James Webb is an international effort. He directed that NASA lead the ISS, the International Space Station partners, to expand the life of the International Space Station to 2024. And he ramped up NASA's Earth science missions so that we can learn more about our own planet, including our changing climate. The centerpiece of, president, of the president's plan was and remains, as a matter of fact, a journey to Mars that will culminate with sending astronauts from the family of spacefaring nations back to the moon in the decade of the 20s and the red, to the red planet in the 2030s. And, uh, and I'm pretty confident we're going to be able to make that. To support this journey, the president envisioned that NASA would expand its international cooperation to include more what we call non-traditional partners around the world and would continue to develop the spacecraft, the rockets, and other technologies that will take American and partner astronauts to deep space. As part of these efforts, we'll expand our work with commercial and international partners on the technologies that drive exploration and have a legacy of creating spin-off benefits here on Earth. And I'm referring both to economic benefits and to benefits of our health and quality of life. To replace the space shuttle, we'd work with American commercial partners to send cargo and crew to the International Space Station, thus helping facilitate a robust commercial space market and a family of dependable commercial launch systems. Today, uh, we use the orbital ATK Cygnus, the SpaceX Dragon to carry cargo to the International Space Station along with the Russian uh, Soyuz in Progress and the Japanese AT HTV and the European ATV. In a little bit more than a year, Boeing and SpaceX will begin to launch from the Kennedy Space Center again, carrying American and partner astronauts to the International Space Station and other low Earth orbit destinations. Today, seven years after President Obama challenged NASA to send astronauts to Mars in the 2030s, we're closer to sending human beings to the red planet than ever before in human history. In the words of President Donald Trump, and I know you find this hard to believe, 
We will unlock the mysteries of space. He said it. I didn't. <laughs> Meanwhile, I probably shouldn't have said that, should I? Okay, my, my wife just went now. Meanwhile, a new consensus is emerging in the scientific and policy communities around the Global Exploration Roadmap, a future exploration strategy document developed in 2013 through the efforts of some 25 international partners. Since those days on our current exploration trajectory, in December 2014, the Orion crew vehicle flew farther into space than any spacecraft built for human passengers has flown in more than four decades. The European Space Agency, or ESA, the responsible agencies for development of the Orion service module, the power and propulsion module for Orion, continues its steady march toward final delivery and flight. The space launch system, the heavy lift launch vehicle rocket that will someday propel international astronauts to deep space, has moved from concept to development and construction. And, and I, I'm going to take a, mo a moment here to show you a video, and it's loud, and there's a lot of fire and smoke. So if it gets too loud, let me know, and I'll tell the guys to turn it down or stick your... It's loud. But we are not dealing with stuff on a drawing board. We're talking about cutting hardware. We're talking about testing systems. In this very quick two-minute video, what you're going to see is engines being tested at the Stennis Space Center down in Mississippi. You're going to see solid rocket boosters that are going to power the space launch system into space being tested out in Utah in the desert. You're actually going to see one video, and I'll, I'll, I'll call your attention to it when you see it, because although we launched Orion into space, it did not have a crew on board, but we mounted uh, cameras that were about the, the height that a crew member would be sitting looking out the window as they re-entered Earth's atmosphere. And the thing I have to remind you, you know, the space shuttle didn't burn during re-entry like the Apollo, Germany, and Mercury spacecraft. We had tile that, that just kind of dissipated the heat. We're going back to an ablative surface. So you're literally going to see the outside of the spacecraft burning away to protect the pilots, the crew members on the inside. Now, I'll, I'll call it to your attention. So you get a pilot's eye view of what it's like being inside your spacecraft as it burns up, coming back inside the atmosphere. So kind of hang on to your seats. If I can get this to work, I'll, I'll try my best. Most of this is being done in a facility called Michoud outside of New Orleans, on the east side of, of New Orleans. That's the Kennedy Space Center. This is an artist's concept. This is a main engine, one of four that's going on the space launch system, being tested at, on a test stand down in Stennis on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Lots of fire and smoke. That's a solid rocket booster being tested two years ago out in Utah. This is at the Kennedy Space Center where they're actually putting the finishing touches on, on the flight version of Orion that's going to carry crew. This is the re-entry video. So that's what it looks like looking at your vehicle coming back to Earth from inside Orion. 
So we're a long ways down the road to sending humans to Mars. Nations represented by many of the students here on the UCSD campus, as I walked around today, it's an international campus. And so nations represented by many of the students here continue to make new discoveries with missions such as the Hubble Space Telescope, Kepler, SOHO, Cassini-Huygens, uh, Rosetta, the Global Precipitation Measurement Device that was a partnership between Japan and, and the United States, Hinode, Hayabusa, the Mars Orbiter Mission, New Horizons, Juno, and many more. On the horizon in the next few years are missions such as the James Webb, James Webb Space Telescope. That uh, there are at least two of us in the room who believe that James Webb, if successful, is going to dwarf what we have learned about our universe from the Hubble Space Telescope. Think about that. I mean, we have rewritten textbooks. Our understanding of the universe is totally uh, just changed by, on, by virtue of what we discovered with Hubble. Uh, James Webb's going to just dwarf that. And, and so we're really excited about it. We've got the InSight mission that's going to take samples at Mars. We've got Mars 2020, and one about which I'm really excited because it comes from one of the expanded international partners, the non-traditional partners that President Obama really pushed, the United Arab Emirates. They're preparing their, their first planetary mission. It's called the Emirati Mars mission, and it's supposed to launch the end of 2020 to arrive in, in early 2021 in conjunction with the, the 50th anniversary of the founding of the United Arab Emirates, and it will become the third orbiting Mars-orbiting atmospheric study mission to, to join with what India, the United States, uh, already have there. Um, what I just showed you, in fact, I, I talked through it, there's a significant transformation that I strongly believe must be made, however, to optimize our chances for advancing our efforts to extend human presence deeper into our solar system. That transformation will, will be to include the men and women of the China Space Agency into the current family of nations working on the International Space Station and to include their ideas on lunar and Mars human exploration into our deliberations on the road ahead. Critically important today is that our journey is starting to capture the public's interest, minds, and imagination. That's a tangible sense that I get as I travel and meet folks that space exploration is in vogue now. This coolness factor, and young people tell me that's not really cool uh, to use the coolness factor, but the coolness factor is what inspires young people, young kids, to want to study science or to write a science fiction story. And all those things make a difference. Inclusion of the Chinese into our team of innovators and explorers will allow us to make an even bigger difference. When I think of a world in which your kids and my granddaughters will be raising their own children, I see a world where their kids view human beings living and working on Mars as a fact of life, much as they view living and working on the International Space Station today. A future where NASA and its international partners are using Mars as a stepping stone to the rest of the solar system. I see a future where a robust private space industry is launching human beings, cargo, and satellites of all sizes to space at a significantly lower price point, thanks to the work we're doing today to make launches more affordable and to advance emerging small satellite technologies like CubeSats and NanoSats. A future where the next great global space and technology company utilizes technologies developed for space travel to develop a product that improves the quality of life here on Earth. A future where flying from San Diego to Cape Town, South Africa, 
is a better experience both for the people in the plane and on the ground because we've succeeded in reimagining air traffic management and we've made flight cleaner, greener, safer, and quieter. By flight, I mean both airplanes and helicopters, and NASA today has embarked on the production of, we hope it will eventually be five prototypes in various areas. The, the one that, that captures my imagination is the low-boom supersonic airplane here that uh, Lockheed Martin right now is leading the team on development. Uh, it will revolutionize our ability to go faster than the speed of sound because instead of getting a boom, sonic boom that breaks windows and makes a lot of noise, all you get off the, when, when the plane goes supersonic is a, a, a mild, just a rumble. And uh, so we're hoping that we can work with the FAA to legalize supersonic flight over ground uh, soon. Um, bad news. And I, will, I won't show you this whole thing because I don't want you to get depressed. But, but this is a fact of life today. And, and this is the message as I talked to some of the students today, they asked me, what could they do? And I said, spend your time talking to the people who represent you in Washington, D.C., your congressmen and your senators, and, and tell them what you believe and what you think and why you believe it. This is, um, this is the first of, of two uh, data sets that I'm going to show you, but this is actually the growth of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere since we actually started measuring it. And I think you get the point. Uh, you know, if you look at the scale on the bottom, yellow is bad, red is really bad, and so this is what's happening to our planet today. We're up to 2015 of, uh, we're up to February of 2015, so I'm going to give you an accompanying uh, graphic. Because a lot of us believe that carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas is impacting the increased temperature on the surface of Earth, this will show you, since we began taking global temperature measurements, what, what we see happening on the surface of Earth. And I don't need to tell you, you know, yellow is bad, red is really bad. So kind of look at the dates and look at the progression of time in, in many of our lifetime on this planet and, and see what, what we're doing. And I think we can do better, to be quite honest. So I see a future where our children's children are drinking cleaner water, breathing cleaner air, and making use of cleaner energy, not only because our international partnerships have helped us better understand climate change, but because of the work our scientists are doing in areas like green aviation and water purification. I see a future where fewer citizens of this planet are losing a sister or a son because the medical technologies we perfect to protect our astronauts from exposure to radiation on a long-duration spaceflight help revolutionize medicine or because the technologies we've developed to detect signs of life on other planets continue to help emergency workers listen for beating hearts in the rubble after disaster, such as an instrument called Finder developed up at the Jet Propulsion Lab that was used in Nepal uh, after the earthquake there a couple of years ago. I see a future where girls and young people of color are more excited about pursuing education in science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. A world where, unlike today, there will no longer be any states in the United States where no women take the advanced placement AP test in computer science. Thanks in part to NASA's work to promote STEM education and careers. I see a future where people in even the most remote corners of the world have access to Wi-Fi, 
as do astronauts living and working in space today on the International Space Station. I see a future where maybe, just maybe, humanity finds the answer to the age-old question of whether we're alone in the universe. While none of us can know for sure what the future has in store, there is one thing we can say with, good, with a good degree of certainty. None of us and none of these things can happen on their own. They will require future leaders to continue to make the choices that point us in this direction. Future presidents, future administrators, and future citizens. We are embarked on a visionary course. It's my sincere hope that the future leaders from all sides of the political spectrum and throughout the world will see it through. Because I truly believe the sort of future I laid out is well within our grasp. As I close, I want to share with you a quote from the Department of State telegram written in July of 1969. Most of the youngsters in here are not impressed by that date. Uh, but for some of us, you will remember it was July 1969 that humans finally landed on a place other than Earth when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. And, and this is what it said in the Department of State telegram. The Russian press was surprisingly generous with its praise of the men behind Apollo 11 and American space research in general during the days that the historic moon voyage was in progress. But now they seem to fear that the landing may have increased respect for Americans around the world. You gotta remember, it was the Cold War back then. Another State Department telegram read, 5,000 Hungarians walked through the American embassy yesterday. They came to pay tribute to Apollo 11. They came in overalls spattered with paint, in smocks, in tie and suit, Without shirts, old and bent, young and athletic, students, workers, old people. It noted that even the secret police were cooperative and good-natured. Indira Gandhi, then Prime Minister of India, declared that the moon landing was one of the most exciting and significant moments in human history. The Queen of England reportedly stayed up with her children to watch. The Pope spoke about humankind's pursuit of a new destiny. In New York City, people took to the streets to dance and to celebrate. The Houston Chronicle wrote, for a moment it seemed that all men were brothers. Communist journalists congratulated American scientists. Israeli photographers beamed at Egyptian broadcasters. Brown hands grasped white ones and few eyes were dry. The, world, the word went out in 30 languages, in 1,535 radio and television networks, to 10 to 1,056 newspapers, and to 445 magazines in 57 countries. We witnessed similar worldwide reactions on the evening that Curiosity touched down on Mars after surviving its seven minutes of terror through the Martian atmosphere three years ago. Just think, just think for a moment what it will be like when you're with loved ones watching the first astronauts from Earth reach Mars, just think. I plead with you to join with me in the pursuit of this vision and help us to continue to turn science fiction into science fact and make the impossible possible. Thank you all very much for your time and coming out. Thank you. Are there any questions before I get out of here? Because once, uh-oh, there is one. 
thought I was going to escape. I think you almost answered my question. What did you think of the uh, movie Hidden Figures? And I understand that Kevin Costner's character is now you um, at NASA. Uh, no, Kevin Costner's character is not me. Uh, Kevin, Car- Kevin Costner's character is actually, as it is in most motion pictures, it's a compilation of a lot of people in NASA at the time. It, he represents um, NASA leadership at that time, the, the courage to do the things that needed to be done uh, at the time because uh, the women that were the human computers. And, and the, the, one of the unfortunate things, I thought the movie was awesome. That, that was your first question. I, it, it is, a, it is an, a lesson for all of us. It, it, it brings a message to all of us because it speaks to all of us. Uh, Jackie will tell you, and we watched it a, a whole lot of times because we went to a lot of premieres and debuts and had an opportunity to meet the cast and the producer and director and the writer and everything. And um, every time I watched it, I laughed, I cried, I got angry, uh, but I left feeling really good because I, I left at what we've accomplished, not not. You know, not where the problems were. And I think I'm the eternal optimist. That, that's just the way I live. And I think if nothing else, Hidden Figures should provide all of us with the inspiration and the, the uplift to know that we can overcome anything if we decide to do that. But, but Kevin Costner's character actually represents, if any one person, it, it most likely was Bob Gilruth, who became the first director of the Johnson Space Center when they moved the, space, the human spaceflight program from Langley, Virginia, down to, down to Houston and opened up the Johnson Space Center. But he's a compilation of a lot. Awesome, awesome movie. Any, any, one, more, one more question, and that's it. And you look like you're under 30. <laughs> so that's a I good am. way to finish. Um, what would be the first steps I would need to take to be able to start getting up to astronaut level? Oh, the first. Now, are you a student here at UCSD? I'm in high school. You're in high school. Your first step is to finish high school. Yeah. And, 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 and seriously, <laughs> and I, I, I say this to graduate students. I say it to to people who are professionals. You know, who have got a thousand hours in airplanes. The first thing is to make sure that you equip yourself with the tools that you can say you're the best at what you do. So really focus on your studies in high school. Three things, and I tell it to people of all ages, study hard, work hard. Do not be afraid of failure. Don't let anybody tell you what you cannot do. Um, I never dreamed of going to space. Never dreamed of being an astronaut. Did not want to be a Marine. Did not want to fly airplanes. Uh, so if I graded myself on the accomplishment of my goals in life coming out of C.A. Johnson High School in Columbia, South Carolina, I get a big F uh, because I didn't do anything that I thought I wanted to do. I would say study really hard now. Uh, pick a college that has something that you like, and it could be a JC, could be a, a two-year college, um, and do well. You know, really focus on something. Find out what your passion is and just follow that, and that'll take care of That'll take care of you for the rest of the stuff. And if, if you're intended to, to become an astronaut, you'll flow right through. It's hard. Don't make no mistake about that. But you're, you're well on your way, the fact that you're here tonight and you asked the question. Yeah. Thank you all very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.